This podcast is brought to you by the Dunfield Retirement Residence, a casually elegant retirement community located at Young and Eglinton in the heart of Midtown Toronto. Customized living options complement your independent, active lifestyle. Learn more at thedunfield.com. This is Bonjour Chai, the Ballroom in the Kiddush Room edition. I'm David Sklar here in chilly Calgary, and I'm with the incredible Alana Zakon in Montreal. Alana, how's it going? Oh, I'm so flattered. Incredible. That's so nice. What a nice way to start my day with validation <laughs> from David Sklar. Well, this week, we and only we are your frozen chosen. Avi Feingold could not make it this week. We've had some creative differences over the direction of the show and realized the best way to resolve them was trial by combat. And as you can hear, we're here and he's not, so that is that. This week on the show, I interview a queer Jewish Western Canadian drag performer, and in our second segment, Alan and I get into some hot topics in the news that have been on our minds lately. Stay tuned right after this message. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. The idea of inhabiting and playing with an identity you usually don't exhibit isn't new to Judaism. And many aspects of our identity are so much more fluid and variable than any static set of labels could contain. Probably most prominently is at Passover, when you're supposed to act and inhabit the mindset of someone without any power or privilege. During Purim, everyone dresses up, and you're supposed to get to a point, with high amounts of booze, of course, when the lines between identities blur, and the differences between what we traditionally think of as good and bad become much less clear. As Jews, because we want to fit in and belong, we can easily put on a mask and pass in broader society, become less Jewish, pull it back, tone it down. But we also seek out places of refuge and safety, where we recognize one another, our shared stories and songs, and let all aspects of our identity breathe. Perhaps not that dissimilar to a drag brunch or a gay bar for queer people. Several months ago, I sat down with Sam Brown to discuss gender, queer identity, as well as the life of transforming into drag kings and queens. And with the new updates of the Colorado club shooting still in circulation, I thought rather than focusing on the crime and criminal, now would be the best time to hear from an artist and activist involved with the Calgary queer and Jewish communities. Take a listen. It's Pride Week in Calgary. And on Sunday morning, I attended Beth Tzedek's first annual drag brunch with catered breakfast, bottomless mimosas, and a star-studded lineup of drag performers. With me today was host Sam Brown. Sam is a non-binary, multi-hyphenate, residing on Treaty 7 territory in Calgary, Alberta. They are an artist, community organizer, queer activist, and digital marketing strategist. Sam, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Thank you so much, David. I'm very excited to be here. Can you talk to me about what originally got you interested in drag and drag performance? Yeah, it's kind of a... There's many levels of the story. So my drag persona, Vanta Black, is like a femme drag queen. 
uh, and I am a femme presenting person. So for the longest time, um, I did not know that I would be allowed to do drag because I think stereotypic things have changed more recently, of course. But, you know, even like five, ten years ago, you really only see cis men who are like feminine drag queens getting success and performing on stage and being really elevated in those spaces. I remembered this thought that I wanted to do it, but I was like, oh, maybe I just never will because I'm not a gay man. <laughs> um, but yeah, time progressed. And I met some folks um, in university who were also interested in doing drag. And we had just been talking about it for so long that it reached the point where I was like, you know, it's not that hard. We just have to start. And um, that start was me pulling my friends into my bathroom. And I'm like, we're just going to put makeup on our faces. Doesn't matter what it looks like. And we just did that every week for, I think, four months. And our goal was to go out on Halloween. And we did that. It went well. Um, my real intro to drag was hosting a weekly show for two years out of nowhere, uh, which was a real privilege. Um, yeah, because we thought we would just be doing it for, you know, a couple of shows. And then everybody really liked it. Uh, and that was when Drag Race started doing their back-to-back seasons with no breaks in between. Got very uh, exhausting. Was, it was... That's a whole other topic of drag exhaustion that I'm on right now, but <laughs> we can talk uh, about it. But I think I feel the same way then as you. I I always describe it as I feel like I kind of tricked my way in because there were not other femme performers doing femme drag at the time. Like there, there's trans women doing drag, and uh, there always, always, always have been. And a lot of drag as it is today is rooted in the work of Black trans women. And I think so often that is forgotten and there's so much hidden misogyny in drag. And what I had realized when I was doing um, one of the largest events, the first event, or sorry, the first really big event that I was helping to produce that had Queens from Drag Race coming and I was coordinating everything. I was like, why don't I feel welcome here, even though this is like my show and I've been sending all of the emails, I'm coordinating everything. And I was thinking to other times I had felt that way. And it was like, oh, when I was doing things like being in science spaces or like other male dominated fields. And yeah, it was in that moment I kind of had like the light bulb where I was like, oh, drag just operates like every other male dominated field. And then I wasn't sad anymore. I was just angry. And <laughs> I think that was actually what pushed me to truly like start performing and commit as fully as I did. And that's not necessarily the healthiest way to start drag with, uh, you know, big internal and external conflicts around you. <laughs> I don't know. From what, I, from what I've heard of a lot of people's stories, that is the motivating factor. Yeah. And sometimes you need that little extra bit of pressure to, to get you out there. And despite like the, the issues that I had with very specific people, I'm very, very fortunate to have a supportive community and the weekly show I was running, I was able to really showcase unique styles of drag, which is different gender expressions and really give that space for people to do whatever you wanted. Like I never gave them any rules. I'm like, don't think about the audience, think about what you want to do. But since then, that was about, um, that was almost like three or four years ago now. So it's been a very very different uh, journey as it's progressed. And now there's so much diversity in Calgary. I think from I've been able to perform in a variety of cities now across Canada. And the feeling that 
sort of exists at the shows in Calgary is very different. And speaking with performers in other cities, they don't have spaces as readily available that are so welcoming to different types of drag, like alternative drag and more sort of like spoken word performance pieces or more theatrical. One of my favorite shows that I've ever done was an all Avril Lavigne night. Um, that was a surprise show <laughs> that we did. You you talked about diversity. You yourself are mm-hmm. Jewish. You, you identify as a Jew. I am. Mm-hmm. Um, do you find the two ever mixed in terms of your drag performance, your drag personas, your, your, your Judaism? Like, do you combine them like Judaism in a sense? Yeah. <laughs> um, so my first real performance that I did was a holiday themed show. And I did a Hanukkah themed number with a menorah. And whenever anyone came up to tip me, I gave them a dreidel. And it was like a Rachel Bloom, like spoof song of something. And like, I guess that was, yeah, that was really my first performance was very Jewish and it was very fun. Um, And people still come up to me saying that they still have their dreidel. And I'm like, that's impressive because if I bring a dreidel home, it's gone in 20 seconds because I have cats and they, they take them. (laughs) No, I was just going to say you ended up hosting this at Beth said a congregation where you actually told the crowd that this was your synagogue when you grew up here in Calgary. You said, Mm -hmm. I believe you said something like you never thought you would be back here in drag. What was that experience like? Yeah, I think my, I was talking to my mom after the show of like my jokes that had come. And she came as well. Yeah, my mom came. And it was like, I never thought I'd be wearing a wig in a synagogue in my life. (laughs) And I thought that was quite silly. But um. It was really interesting. I wasn't really sure how I was going to feel being in that space uh, during the show. And I was really pleasantly, not just pleasantly surprised, like I, it was such an incredible opportunity to be welcomed into the space in that way. And to have, you know, a queer rabbi and to hear his opening to the show, like I truly almost teared up. I was like, this is just not something that I ever would have like thought to imagine that this would be happening in this space. <laughs> it was just how, how you felt being, being in that room. But now that you bring it up, I am curious. And this is what I was thinking when I was, I was there in the synagogue. You, you talked about feeling so welcome and, and, and the big change, but I'm, I'm wondering if it's a bit of a deterrent now because I, the way I view it is drag has gone so mainstream with RuPaul's Drag Race. There's a RuPaul in just about, you know, so many countries around the world. And there is one show after the next, after the next, like it's a machine. Do you think that it's gone so far that it is so accepted now in a conservative synagogue that it's almost lost its counterculture? You know, because drag is now so ubiquitous. What does it stand for anymore? I fully understand what you're saying. It's something that I face a lot, especially with sort of the... Let me figure out where to go with this. There are a few different pathways I can talk about it. I think, <laughs> I think, so when, hmm, okay. Drag race is very important to drag culture as a whole because it has brought accessibility to drag to so many people. Where the problems begin is where people stop at drag race say they love drag. And and that's also an uh, accessibility thing that some people may not have been able to go to a drag show. But there's also a lot of people going to drag shows for the first time now in person, and then getting really disappointed because they're like, oh, this isn't drag race. It's like, yeah, this isn't drag race. That's kind of the point. It's like, that's you're not going to go to a 
community soccer game and expect it's the Olympics, you know, and, which is not to diss one or the other or say that local drag is lesser. I would argue local drag is far superior because it's built. It is a grassroots activity and it is rooted in so much activism. But you don't know that unless you take that extra step from watching Drag Race to starting to research for yourself. And in more recent seasons, you, you'll notice there's more queens that are talking quite openly about more political issues or cultural issues that are rooted in it. But because there's like so much Drag Race happening at once, it's hard to actually absorb those moments because you have three other episodes to catch up on. And it's so oversaturated. And that's kind of the nature of I think creative things, but I can't really think of something else off the top of my head that this has really happened with in recent years. This is a very new like digital media phenomenon. I think that, you know, people do drag in their bedrooms and build an entire presence on social media, but never perform outside. And that is such an incredible thing. And it doesn't take away from their value as a drag performer either. Like drag itself is a form of activism to be open and exploring your identity and putting it on display for, you know, not the world, but like the community and your world and for yourself, most importantly, is activism. And when we forget that, that is when the community starts to have more issues. Possibly. Sam, could you maybe speak a little bit more to, um, to, to being femme and doing drag? Because I think some people might have the misconception that drag is to inhabit a gender that might not be yours, right? To really do the polar opposite. What, what, what are you talking about when you identify this way and then it's, it's this deeper expression that you want to explore in your performances? Yeah, that's a really excellent question. Because um, there's a lot of different words for the way people do drag. And people have asked me, you have not asked me, which I really appreciate. Um, it's just like, also oh, like, but what do you call what you do? <laughs> and it's always with a, there's like a tone of judgment or inferiority that goes with it. But you're asking like how, how drag works, I guess, as when it's not binary in a mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, I think I think so, because I just was thinking some people are going to be like, well, it's clearly a man who wants to portray or play being a woman, something that they're that they don't really have. And they want to explore this opposite. And then I think, as you mentioned, you know, what what does it mean to you to inhabit this femme role? As you said yourself, you, mm-hmm. you, you do this. Yeah, I think for me also, because I have a complex relationship with femininity and trying to figure out what that is. Um, and realizing also along the way that to be non-binary, you don't have to look a certain way. You don't have to be an like androgynous, tall, skinny model is the, like, that's the only way you can be non-binary. That's not true at all. Um, and for me, I think presenting in feminine drag and like being more of a drag queen, but I've just sort of been describing it now is that I want to look like a super villain <laughs> and I will go from there. <laughs> and that's just sort of the, I don't know, that powerful like boss bitch feeling is what I want to be feeling when I'm in drag. And I miss having that feeling. It's been gone for a little while, but it's coming back. I want to ask you something else because you've touched a bit upon this in terms of the politics. Um, 
you know, I think we're starting to see a bit of pushback in the U.S. and here even in Canada surrounding drag story time at libraries uh, from people who feel that drag and children should not mix. I was curious about what your thoughts were. There is this false, this false interpretation that drag is sexual and that sexual things near children means harm is going to happen. And drag is not inherently sexual. There are definitely sexual performances, but it is not a sexual act. Um, it is not uh, something that you can catch. It is not a illness. It is not, you're not going to damage your child. Your child might have glitter on them after, but that's, that's, which <laughs> that's is your impossible to get rid of. Okay. I mean, when I, after I started drag, uh, I moved back in with my mom for a year and she told me I couldn't have glitter in the house. And I'm like, I am an adult. <laughs> no, I agree with your mother on this one. There should be no glitter at home. I mean, I eventually got there, but <laughs> it was a very okay. funny conversation, but, um, but in all seriousness, the, People trying to say that drag is harming children are idiots, just blatantly. Like, drag does not harm children. And exposing young people to different types of identities, different types of people, is part of the education that allows for a healthier and stronger community. Drag Queen Storytime is one of the greatest things I've ever been a part of. And it is so fun. And if you have one in your city, even if you don't have kids, you should go with your friends and sit in the back and it will bring you so much joy. Like everyone who hates drag, like the concept of drag story time needs to attend, sit silently and just appreciate the story time <laughs> because it's it's just so fun. And also what it's not all that different from, you know, you hire princess impersonators for your kids birthday parties like. It's very much the same. They're usually wearing a lot more expensive costumes, those ones. <laughs> uh, Sam, thank you for listening to me. I really appreciated listening to you. Um, yes, and with you. that, I wish you all the best. Next up, Alan and I look at the media and ask, new, as in what's new? Stick around to hear more. Did you know April 2023 is Israel's 75th anniversary? In honor of this huge milestone, UJA Federation of Greater Toronto is planning an epic trip to Israel, and all of Canada is invited. Israel's anniversary, Yom Ha'atzma'ut, is a one-of-a-kind experience. Streets are filled with parties, fireworks, music, and dancing. On UJA's Israel 75, you'll get to join the celebration. 75 is not a regular anniversary, and Israel 75 is not your typical trip. You'll get a truly unique experience of the country, no matter how many times you've been before. With 10 specialized tracks, you can create an itinerary that is totally personalized, whether you're a foodie, an adrenaline seeker, a TV buff, or politically minded. The best part? You can mix and match tracks on different days. Embark on a thrilling adventure one day and a culinary experience the next. Let your own interests be your guide and experience everything Israel has to offer. To learn more about the trip, visit UJAIsrael75.com. That's ujaisrael 75 for our second segment of Bonjour Chai, we bring you another edition of something we've done a few times on the show now. Some stories from the news that have been on our minds lately. The hottest takes from the most chosen of the frozen. And I'll go first. So I just came across an article in The Atlantic 
Um, it is from the spring. Um, I found that this article is still very relevant and topical. So the article is written by Jonathan Haidt. Um, well, first of all, just for context, um, Jonathan is a social psychologist at the New York University Stern School of Business. He's also the co-author of The Coddling of the American Mind, a book which my boyfriend has been trying to get me to read for the whole year, which after reading this article, I honestly want to read it. Um, so he's talking about the phenomena of social media and how it has divided and uh, us as North American citizens, he's based in the States, so he was talking a lot about American politics, but moreover than dividing us, it's also given us a platform to spread misinformation for people to get into wars, for, um, you know, uh, what happens on social media to almost take precedence over what happens in the press or what happens in real life with the people in front of you. And he compares all of this to the story of the Tower of Babel. David, do you remember learning about that story? Can you tell me what you might remember from it? Yeah. So I remember it's like what all the different nations are, were coming together to build this tall, tall tower to try to reach up to Hashem and God. And God is probably with the angels, I think, looking down and being like, oh, this isn't good. All the humans are going to try to reach up to here. So we have to just what what is it? We have to destroy the temple and then make sure each group and community now has their own language so they cannot speak to each other and they remain divided. Is Did I did I get that mostly right? Yeah, that I would say that's pretty accurate. So what what Jonathan says, and I quote, Babel is a metaphor for what some forms of social media have done to nearly all of the groups and institutions most important to the country's future and to us as a people. How did this happen? And what does it pretend for American life? And it's a very long article, so I'm just going to go into the highlights. Um, but he talks about how back in the day, and you know, we're old and young enough to remember this, when MySpace and Facebook um, had just come out, they were relatively harmless. It was mostly a space where you could share photos, as you know, maybe a little status update for your family and your friends. But he talks about how in 2009, all of that began to change with the like button. And that same year, that was when Twitter also introduced the retweet button. And then Facebook was like, okay, well, we're going to introduce a share button. And what would happen after that was that it was in that moment that Facebook and a lot of these other social media sites began to develop algorithms of how people were engaging with their content. And that is what leads us to today, where what used to be a harmless way of, you know, almost photo album sharing with people you know has become this really toxic wasteland of war-torn social media arguments. And I'll read you another quote. By 2013, social media had become a new game with dynamics unlike those in 2008. If you were skillful or lucky, you might create a post that would quote unquote go viral and make you internet famous for a few days. If you blundered, you could find yourself buried in hateful comments. Your post rose to fame or, I don't even know how to pronounce this, ignominy based on the, the clicks of thousands of strangers and you in turn contributed thousands of clicks to the game. This new game encouraged dishonesty and mob dynamics. Users were guided not just by their true preferences, but by their past experiences of reward and punishment and their prediction of how others would react to a new action. One of the engineers at Twitter who had worked on the retweet button later revealed that he regretted his contribution because it made Twitter a nastier place. As he watched Twitter mobs forming through the use of this new tool, he thought to himself, we might have just handed a four-year-old 
a loaded weapon. Before I continue talking about the article, what are your thoughts right now, David, on this? I mean, as people who are listening could tell, you know, I've never been a super fan of social media or having this online presence at all times. It, it, it resonates a lot with me, but I'm even thinking, okay, beyond this, what happens in the next 10 years? If Facebook is in this decline and less and less people are using it, especially younger people, and it looks like Twitter might go the way of the dinosaur too, what does five and 10 years in the future look like? Is it going to be even worse? Is it going to be crazier than it's ever been before? Or is there going to be some kind of movement where young people want to go back to, you know, like a, a, a turn off, almost like a Shabbat dinner, right? Where they almost can relax and get away from their phones and online media. What is the future? Yeah, well, he does go into that later into the article where he gives some tips on how, how we can move forward in a more productive way. But before we get there, David, have you ever had an experience where you posted something just for the likes, like maybe when you were younger or even now? Can, can you tell me a bit about that? Oh, you're going to make me feel so bad and guilty Honest right now. moment. No, look, we've all done it. Of course we've done it. And as artists, there was even a, look, there was a friend of mine who's um, an actor and playwright, and she was saying, David, I want you to post something about me because I don't want to post it about myself for it to look vain <laughs> or insincere. So I said, okay, fine, friend. I will post it and say, hey, check out what my friend is doing. It's quite awesome and fantastic. And then she agreed at some point to post something that I was doing and how I'm awesome and fantastic. That's Wow, that's a lot of layers. Absolutely. Um, my only concern is, you know, we talk about all these problems in social media and everything like that, and we sort of say, oh, we should get it off it, we should get off it. I almost view it like as a candy bar, right? It's full of empty calories, but it tastes good in the moment. We love having that hit of dopamine. We love seeing what's new on Instagram, and I'm guilty of it too. I will waste, you know, 20, 30 minutes just scrolling through Instagram. Like, is there a solution? Do they bring up anything in the article about how to how to wean ourselves off of it if, if we can't? Or is it just impossible in our society to do that? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that I'm an anomaly in the sense that I have very strict rules around my technology use, especially um, in the past year. I don't use my phone in my bedroom or even in my living room, um, which was an idea that my partner and I came up with, which I'm really, really liking. And I've been trying to keep it up even when I'm not home. Like if we're staying over at friends uh, for the weekend or something, I'll do the same thing just to keep that rhythm. Uh, I try not to look at my phone past a certain time of the night. Um, I'm trying to do better at monitoring my social media. I go through waves where I'm really, really good, or I'll do like a week cleanse where I don't check it at all except for Messenger. But then the problem is, is inherently because of the nature of our industry, and I'm sure you experience this too, when you're in the arts and you're in an, an industry that's ever changing, you, you need to kind of be in the know. People post auditions, people post networking events, and that is the only reason why I still have my social media is for acting. Um, and it's a, something I struggle with all the time. I've gotten work because I just happened to be looking at Facebook at the right moment in the right hour. And someone said, I need a last minute fill in someone. And I said, yeah, I, I can do it. So I can't leave it. And I, I probably will never be able to leave it. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that we can find other ways of spreading this information. Uh, David, what, what's on your mind? So we're heading in a different direction. Um, this is from Haaretz this past week, and it was written by Judy Maltz. And the headline reads, Adelson family withdrawing most of its support from Birthright. And before I get into it, Alana, I forget, have you been on Birthright? 
No. Okay. My mom's not going to be happy listening to this. I mean, she knows. But I've been to Israel twice. And here's here's my thing. This is my very honest, candid answer. Yes. Is that the pandemic hit and they announced that they were going to be cutting off the older trip. So my my family was like, this is your moment. But the more that I thought about it, I felt like I'd almost aged out of birthright. I've already done, an, when I was 15, there was a trip uh, in Montreal called Dorot. It was a five-week Israel trip. That was my first experience. So I've done all the touristy things, and I've been back with family. And the idea of being on a bus with ten, like for 10 days and having to hike Masada again and wake up in the middle of the night and just doing all those things, I felt like I was almost too old for it. Um, and I'd almost rather experience Israel on my own terms and just go and do the things that I haven't done. Um, so ultimately, I ended up not signing up. Well, you, you soon enough, you may not even have the option, even if you wanted to join Birthright. Just because, you know, as I they know. say, there's a sharp drop in donations. There's there's higher costs with inflation that they are reducing and they're cutting thousands of participants for next year. Really? And yeah. And it was so interesting as I was reading the Adelson Family Foundation, which is the biggest one of the biggest f uh, financial contributors to the program which normally in the past has given like 35 to 40 million dollars this year reduced it to 20 million and next year in 2023 they're even going to cut that in half to 10 million do you know why does it say why it doesn't go into details oh the only the only thing i could deduce from it is you know shelton adelson was the big backer and he passed away he died and his wife miriam is now in control of close to 30 billion dollars in assets and now is the sole grant making policy. Uh, she she controls everything about this money. So thinking Miriam maybe doesn't want this to happen anymore. Maybe there's a falling out with the program. The program itself wouldn't go into details or comment on the reasons why they think there is less money coming in. But if Adelson's Family Foundation is dropping, other donations are going to drop and the Israeli government matches all donations to the birthright program. So if the if donations are going down, the Israeli government's going to give less and thus there's just going to be less and fewer and fewer participants. And, and over the years since it's been in operation, there's been what, like 800,000 young Jews who have gone to Israel solely for this program. And now that, you know, what's going to happen? Will it be 100,000 and then 50,000? And then in a few years again, there will be hardly any young Jews from Europe, Australia, New Zealand, North America that go to Israel. That makes me think, uh, not to like get into the weeds too much, but it is a small subsection of Jews who are very against the birthright trip, um, specifically more anti-Zionist, um, far left-leaning Jews. Um, you know that, what? Like, that's where my brain went. Look, I'm, I went on Birthright. I even hosted, I was a madrich for a Birthright organization. And yes, there are very clear problems with Birthright. But when I was there... When I was there for Birthright, even Israelis are tired of the program too. They're like, so much of our money goes to this program where it's like, it doesn't do anything for us as the state. It's just a way for young Jews who have like very little connection to the state to come, party, get drunk for 10 days, and then go home. So young Israelis actually might be happy about this cutback too. I mean, on the, on the flip side of things, I've met people who had very little affiliation with their Judaism, like just on a cultural level. And then their parents said, you know, you should go, you should go. They went and they said that was the closest they'd ever felt to being Jewish in their lives, even if it was just for that, you know, two weeks that they were there. I mean, what, what types of effects do you think cutting the trip off might have on the community? 
Well, you, you know, you started to bring it up too, and there are people who have almost little to no affiliation with Judaism or, or Jewish values, or, you know, they're in an interfaith marriage and, you know, mom or, or dad is Jewish, but they've never practiced anything. And it's true. It's a very effective program where you go there and you start to feel things, right? Whether it's politically motivated and some people have issues with the politics involved in that program, but you feel something for the first time if, if you are lacking those things. And I've been there and I remember we we were with soldier you know we went to a grave of a fallen soldier and it was so moving and so effective very well done very almost as someone who has both been on it and then see on the other side you know it's a bit of a rehearsal right you know that this is set up in advance so you know where those moments are really going to make you feel where you start and you go to the holocaust museum and then you go to the you know a fallen soldier israeli soldiers thing so it, it is a bit pre-packaged, but it, it, if it elicits real feelings in you and it makes you want to connect more to your Judaism, then all the best for you. And I would just recommend that for the people who are still thinking about doing it, it is a, it is a program you should absolutely do, but then you should absolutely stay for much, much longer and get to see the real Israel. That was always my issue. Um, like I had friends who only did March of the Living and didn't do that Dora trip that I did. And I felt like Ugh, that's your only experience? Like you went to the concentration camps for a week and then Israel for like a few days or something? Like how can you possibly take in the country, A, in that frame of mind, because really that's just like an antidote to deal with the pain that you're feeling after going to a concentration camp, and also to do it in such a short period of time. Like even 10 days to me is so short compared to the five weeks that I had on my trip. I, I want to I shift gears um, what do we think about the fact that this now one benefactor is making these choices for the entire Jewish community? I mean, I can't help but think that some other philanthropist is going to come forward, like whether it's someone, you know, from the Bronfman family or one of the other um, really incredible philanthropists that we have in the community, because I think there are a lot of people that they really value this trip and the importance of it for the longevity of the Jewish people. It's hard for me to think that, okay, well, you know, she doesn't have as much money that she wants to give, so it's done. I think someone's going to step in personally. You know what? If if they made the money themselves and it is their own money, they should have a decision. They should decide what they want to do with their own money. And if they don't want to give a sense to this organization, that's that's up to them. However, if they've been giving for so long, there has to be a question of why. What is this yeah, one woman going to do with $30 billion of her own? Like, I, I mean, for tax policies, I don't think anyone should have $30 billion to begin with as just a single person. But, you know, the Bronfmans are having their own issues, too, with one of them. Is it Claire Bronfman, who's off in jail right now because of the whole Nexium scandal thing? Sidebar. I don't know. They're having their own problems. They're having their own problems. And I just wonder, is like, what will the future of Jewish philanthropy look like? Should they be focusing on local community issues? Or is this such an integrable part of Jewish life to set up this program that it just has to sustain and there has to be a, a new person or new organization to come in and fill this void? That is a great question. I guess we're just going to have to see how things unfold. Okay. So, Alana, is this okay if, before we even begin, Nachas, Alana, I know you posted something on social media, and I know we were talking about social media, but I, I'm just so curious, what 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 has been going on in your life? What 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 is the exciting news you want to share? I have, since I was a very young child, I've always loved cartoons, and I've always wanted to be in a cartoon, whether it was a TV show, a feature film, anything in between. I finally took that opportunity to break into to more of the animated world. Um, so this movie is called Katak, the Brave Beluga. 
Um, it is coming out in two languages. So there's a French version and an English version. So I was in the English version. Uh, so technically it was a dubbing gig, but because it is animated, I don't know why I said that in that inflection, animated, um, because it's animated, um, for me, it's all about like hitting that rhythm at, at the right tone, finding the voice that matches the character in front of you. And it was very fun because um, we got to play back all of the scenes after we finished each one. So I got to see my voice coming out of this animated character. And it's I would say that it's almost like a Finding Nemo-ish type story, but it's very Canadian. It all takes place like underwater in Canada and it has all of these different whales and fish and it's like a story of of family um I'm curious does the character look like you at all because sometimes with famous actors they they actually like make it look like a famous person but does any resemblance at all to you I definitely don't look like a whale I hope um (laughs) (laughs) it was such a great challenge for me um very fulfilling I, I have the description now Katak the Brave Beluga, the coming-of-age story of a young beluga named Katak. While his peers have all turned white, something expected at their age, Katak is late in his body development. To prove that he has grown up and to grant the last wish of his adored grandma, Katak departs on a perilous journey to the Great North. Along the way, he encounters deadly beasts and makes unlikely friends. You do not have to be big to be brave. So it's a very heartwarming, family-friendly film, and it's coming out in theaters in 2023. I don't think they've announced the exact date, but uh, you'll have to check out the English dubbed version to hear me. I play the character named Naya. I look forward to eventually seeing it. Shall we uh, move on to the Nachas of the week, something that made us feel newish and Jewish or goodish? Uh, David, what's your Nachas this week? Um, so I know I'm a little late to the game, but I did want to give a shout out and my appreciation to Ken Burns and his latest documentary, The U.S. and the Holocaust. I started watching it in September when it first debuted, and I know he's been interviewed by countless people countless times asking, why now? Why the Holocaust? And sometimes that question can just feel redundant or anything like that, but I just want to take a quote of what he said because I think it was just very poignant and very, very, very true. He said, you know, we began to realize fearfully how much almost every sentence of this script of the film was echoing with today. And we wanted to join a conversation because many of these same things, the racism, the anti-Semitism, the nativism, the authoritarian impulses, the erosion of democratic institutions, part of what the film is about is happening right in front of us, right before us. So if you haven't seen it yet, check it out. It is Ken Burns's The U.S. and the Holocaust. Alana, what is your nachas? So this is very new news, which I'm very excited about. Um, On November 28th, Variety released an article that announced that there will be the first, I believe, dramatization of Leonard Cohen. So this is not a documentary. This is an actual series that's going to feature the character of Leonard Cohen that's based off of the book Who by Fire by Matty Friedman, who is an incredible writer and journalist. Uh, so the, the series is going to be called Who by Fire, Leonard Cohen in the Sinai, and it's based off of the story of his 1973 visit to the front lines of the Yom Kippur War. Um, it's going to be coming out, uh, sorry, three, two, one. It's set to shoot in 2024 in Israel, and it's written by the same writer who wrote Stitzel. So I think that this is going to be a great moment for Canadian Jewish uh, history, um, and Matty Friedman himself is a Canadian as well. So I look forward to seeing where this goes and uh, what types of conversations it brings about for the public, who all love Leonard Cohen. Have they announced who will be playing Lenny? 
They have not. We'll have to stay tuned for that. I should put my CV and resume in for, for a consideration, possibly. How's your Leonard Cohen impersonation? Can we hear a sound Who by fire? Who by water? Who in is something, something? <laughs> Maybe we can work on the lyrics, but okay, okay fine. I'll I'll study the lyrics first. We'll 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 keep you in mind. Thank you for thank, thank you. you for coming in. <laughs> don't don't call us. We'll call you. <laughs> thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending December third, Shabbat Parashat Vayetze. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcast is Michael Freeman. Our music is by So Called. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell a friend about Bonjour Chai. It's one of the best ways that we get new listeners. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Leonard Cohen-Sklar. The Dunfield Retirement Residence offers customized living options to complement your independent, active lifestyle. Welcome home. Welcome to the Dunfield. Visit us at thedunfield.com to book a personal tour.